Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello everyone and welcome to a very special Roker Report Extra where today we haven't got our usual rabble of regulars ruin the last minute Doncaster Rovers equaliser uh, but we are very pleased to be joined by the chairman of our next opponents Fleetwood Town which is of course Andrew Pilly. Welcome Andy. Thank you very much Chris, I'm uh, very honoured to appear on the on the podcast. Good stuff, how are you keeping? I'm really good thank you. We'll get straight into it because I've got so much to cover with you on and off the pitch. And I want to circle back to the current day as there are one or two items on the agenda uh, of VFL clubs at the minute, to be fair. But I wanted to begin by giving people a bit of background on kind of you and your time at the club. So you've been the chairman of Fleetwood Town for 17 years. Is that right? That's, that's correct. We're 17 years in March of 2021. So uh, quite a few years. I've done it for a significant period of time now, Chris. I mean, a week's a long time in football, never mind 17 years. I mean, that that's incredible. I mean, you're from that area of the world. I mean, were you always a Fleetwood fan or was this just kind of you getting into football? Fleetwood didn't really ex- exist in the uh, in, in the shape and in the size of football club that it, that it currently is. Fleetwood was was really, it was akin to a pub team, the troop, you know, and the club has changed remarkably over the last 17 years. My first game, we, we had a, a, a gate of 80. So we were... Uh, we were five leagues below the football league, and um, I was invited along from uh, my bank manager at the time, who was the vice chairman. the uh, The chairman was leaving, and he knew I liked my football. I was very keen on amateur football. I run an amateur football club, and I guess being my bank manager, he knew that uh, my business was starting to take off. So uh, his intention was to use his powers of persuasion and get me involved in Fleetwood, which he uh, succeeded in. So, I mean, here's your first question. Can you remember what league Fleetwood were in when, when you took over as chairman? I can remember it crystal clear like it was yesterday. <laughs> um, Fleetwood were in the North West Counties League and everything about the place was was awful. Uh, the ground was falling down. The pitch was the pitch was like the surface of the moon. Uh, there was this big raised area in the six-yard areas, uh, which was, uh, it was just not... Uh, how you look after a football pitch at all. And at the end of the game, clearly the plan was they were they were going to uh, take me into the bar and they were going to try and persuade me to get involved. And I remember going into the bar and I couldn't help but think it stinks in here. It smells really badly. So I opened the window and the intention was to let some fresh air in and the window fell off in my hand. And I kind of thought, I owe these guys now. I'm going to have to do something. I've just broken their window. 
So I felt obliged to help out and subsequently contributed to the wages, well, paid the wages for the remainder of the season. And uh, it was only a fraction of what one player earns nowadays. But for me in those days, it was a significant amount of money. And I just got the bug from there, really, Chris. You've just mentioned all the, you know, the pitch was a mess, windows falling off in your hand and all this sort of stuff. But, <laughs> but I mean, with those early days in the in the kind of Northwest Counties Premier League, I mean, was, I mean, were they enjoyable as well? Was that a different type of football to to what kind of the clubs grown into? It was enjoyable in a very different way because uh, what would happen is you met you met people who ran football clubs at that level, and these were the kind of guys who they would sweep the dressing rooms out after the game. They'd make the referee a cup of tea at half-time and they'd probably be paying money that they could ill afford into the football club. But such was their, and and is their love of the game, they were involved for very much the right reason. And uh, I've got nothing but compliments and uh, I take my hat off to to anyone involved at that kind of level because they're real, genuine, sincere football people. Mm-hmm. I mean, looking back, was it obviously, I mean, it, it's always tough, the industry of football, but did you think it was tougher back then looking back at those kind of early days? Or, I mean, if you take the pandemic out of the equation for a second, if we can, I mean, just in terms of the level that, that we were at, was it tougher at that level than it was as you climb up? Well, what was really tough was in the Northwest Counties, you had to win the league back in 2004 to be promoted. There was no playoffs. Mm-hmm. And our final game of the season, it's not your big opponents, by the way, this is Newcastle Town, it was, uh, who were based uh, in Staffordshire. And we played Newcastle Town and it was winner takes all, got promoted. And there's a hell of a lot of work goes into a football season and uh, money and like we knew we'd lose our best players if we didn't get promoted. And we won the game 2-1, but they had about 10 corners in the last five minutes. And I was absolutely cacking myself that if they scored they could take the draw they would have got promoted we're clearing it off the line and the elation I felt by winning that very first promotion was up there with um, all the other promotions because there's no better feeling than winning a league and achieving what you set out to uh, to succeed in at the very beginning of the season absolutely incredible journey I mean kind of six promotions in 17 years was that is that right six promotions that, that was we my actually time. won six six in 12 years so uh, we got on a real roll. Uh, we've hit a little bit of a, a ceiling right now in, in League One, but that said, we've been in the playoffs twice in the last four years. So we, we've been knocking on the door. We've been up there. We just tend to not turn up uh, when it really matters in the playoffs, uh, yeah. sadly. But uh, yeah, hopefully we can we can make that third time lucky this year. But uh, I think what happened was once we got through that initial promotion, it's a great feeling, as I, as I said before. And... There's no better feeling in football. And what we tended to do is we'd go into a new league, we'd take stock, uh, we'd try and establish who the best players were and we'd make it our business to go and recruit who we felt were the right players. Then we'd have a real determined effort to get out of that league. And as we as we climbed the pyramid, we had the opportunity of playoffs then. And just it was, it's been a magical journey. I mean, our second promotion, we actually got automatic promotion. We needed a goal swing on the last day of five. And we won 3-0 and Kendall Town lost 2-0. And it was a penalty in the very last minute that got us promoted. So it doesn't have to be kind of an Aguero moment that wins the Premier League. What a lot of people don't realise is there is football way beyond the Premier League uh, and even way, be, way, be, way beyond the, uh, the English Football League. And they all feel absolutely magnificent when you, you, you succeed and you, you win that promotion 
and you're on your open top bus going around the town and um, giving the trophies out is great. And of course, then you get the opportunity to go to new grounds. And really the journey, Chris, has been one whereby we started off and we were going to villages. We were going to we were going to Bishop Auckland. We were going to Blythe, Spartan, up your way. Billingham Symphonia, is it? Teams like that. And eventually we've got to Hartlepool. And now, can you believe it? We're playing Sunderland. So, you know, we still pinch ourselves that we, we kind of started off with villages. We've got to towns and, and now we're going toe-to-toe with cities. I mean, in terms of, I mean, looking back, what were the big milestones for you? I mean, you've already mentioned the first couple of promotions, which must have been huge, got it rolling. But what were the big milestones for you on and off the pitch? Well, I think for me, the biggest one was getting into the Football League because I knew and we all knew that that was going to change the football club forever. And so provided we didn't mismanage the football club, we had a fantastic opportunity to cement ourselves as a as a solid member of the English Football League. And to be at Wembley, the match was actually, the playoff final was on my birthday, which made it even more special. A memory which I will, I will, I will just cherish to my dying day is being on the pitch at Wembley with the cup, um, going over to our supporters and you see your family and your friends. And life doesn't get any better than that, Chris. And knowing that the football club that you you got involved with maybe six years ago is now in the, the promised land of the EFL. And everybody said we'd never, ever do it. Everyone said we'd never get to the conference. And to approve them wrong, then that's that was just magnificent. Yeah, yeah. I look, I was looking back at some of those pictures. It, it did look uh, incredible, especially where you'd come from. And I think uh, that was the same. I might be wrong, but I'm sure that was the same summer that you sold uh, Jamie Vardy when you actually moved into the Football League. I think it was an initial one million that, what I've read, it rose to, to 1.7 I mean, was it deals like that that gave you the finance and the backing to keep taking bigger steps? Well, I think Vardy was the exception. He was the one that we got serious money for. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, the, the story with Jamie was we ju- we just built a new main stand and the new main stand was a significant investment for a conference club and we'd set our stall out to be promoted. It was a case of, right, this is the year that we're really going to go for it. We're going to try and get in the Football League. And we only scored two goals in the first five games and I'm left with this kind of dilemma. Do I change the manager? If you change the manager, my belief is you often write the season off because your new manager comes in, he'll tell you that your players are no good. I need some fresh blood. And I really didn't want that to be the case. I rated and I liked the manager. So I remember going to the scout and I said, look, who is the best player in non-league? And he said, Jamie Vardy. And everybody told me Jamie Vardy. I knew of Jamie Vardy, but the problem with Vardy is he he wasn't a professional footballer. He was semi-pro at Halifax. And he was scoring goals against um, the electrician, the plumber, the postman. Can he do it against professional athletes? That was the dilemma. And decided, I spoke to the Halifax chairman. I said, look, I want to sign Jamie Vardy. And he laughed. He said, you and everyone else. Uh, And I said, "Uh, how much do you want? And he said, 150 grand. I said, look, money up front, how much will you take? He said, 150 grand. Uh, And I thought, damn. (laughs) Um, So anyway, we paid the money and it soon became apparent he was special because lightning, lightning quick. We all know what he's like for Leicester. You can imagine him in the conference, couldn't you? Uh, That pace. And he just had this remarkable ability to not only burst clean through, but he always seemed to finish. His finishing was, he was was deadly one-on-one and it was almost akin to cheating uh, playing him (laughs) in the conference. And uh, we managed to, I think we amassed about 104 points, which to this day, I think it's the record amount of points in the conference. 
That said, Wrexham got 100 points. You've got to feel sorry for them because that is a, an enormous total for a club in any league, at any level, to amass, to not be promoted. And again, it would have changed them. Uh, it, would have, it would have got them back to being a solid football league club. And uh, they were just really unfortunate they came up against us on that particular season. But we, we, we couldn't keep him. We were paying him less than £1,000 a week. And he was being offered contracts which would have made him a millionaire overnight uh, for a variety of Premier League clubs. The mistake I made was that his agent was saying, how much will you take for him? And I said a million pounds. Bearing in mind, we were a non-league football club. And I thought no one would pay it. Anyway, I had about four clubs on the phone. Uh, <laughs> West Ham, Cardiff. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, Leicester was one. And they all wanted to pay the money. And they were all, uh, they were all King Peter was one, actually. Darius said. Uh, but uh, they all wanted to pay the money because they knew he was special. And I thought, shit, I've undervalued him here. <laughs> so <laughs> we put all these add-ons in. Uh, the record transfer for a non-league player was £250,000. So I thought no one would pay a million pounds. I thought I was really pushing it. But really, um, he was that good. We probably could have got more. One of the add-ons was we got £250,000 if he played for England. And I remember Leicester at the time going, what if he plays for England? He's a conference player. Um, and we said, look, he's good, you know, you never know. And uh, I, I just remember him coming onto the pitch and making his debut. And within 10 seconds, the Leicester CEO would text me saying, make sure your invoice is in the post. Uh, so uh, <laughs> we were very disappointed when he didn't move uh, to Arsenal because we've got a sizable sell-on fee on him. And uh, I think I'd already spent the money when I saw the uh, uh, the the uh, trigger had, uh, had been alerted by... Um, Arsenal agreeing to pay the money but I think at that time Leicester the players were very close after winning the Premier League and uh, it was persuaded to stay so uh, that was a, a great result for Leicester but not such a great result for us yeah, yeah, yeah! Brilliant, brilliant move for him and and for Fleetwood as well. Um, I mean, you, you've talked about managers. We talked about Jamie Vardy, the timing of that. I mean, for Sunderland fans, just to bring Sunderland into the conversation a little bit. I mean, the lack of strategy over the last ten years or so at Sunderland. You know, maybe even more than ten years actually. I mean, you, you've had almost kind of twenty years of sustained success. Really, multiple managers have have worked under you. I mean, has there been a constant strategy that you've always followed and kept to, or is it just kind of reacting to to what's next? I think there's certain ingredients to success that that uh, are the, part of the culture that we have at the football club, and the culture is one whereby um, there's always expectancy, and you'll, you'll you'll sit down in the summer and you'll have a plan, and you'll say, look, success this year looks like um, holding our own in this league, and maybe trading well and selling some players, and or it may be that we just desperately want to get out of that that particular league because we feel that we've we've got the squad and we're ready now to go again, and we're ready to achieve promotion, so. I think you've got to have an expectancy. You've got to have some accountability as well. So everyone's got to know what their role, what their responsibility is. And ultimately, it comes down to every single person pulling in the same direction. You cannot have any mixed messages. You've got to know uh, we're all going that way. That's how we're going to do it. You're going to do that. You're going to do that. You're going to do that. And you just need that positive vibe. You need that. Uh, I'm a great believer in treating people well. I think if you treat people well and if you can create a positive atmosphere um, then people's productivity a reflection of their productivity will be their mindset and so if you can create a positive uh, environment a positive culture i think you've got a great chance yeah sounds good yeah, Sunderland could do with 
a little bit of that uh, at the moment. I mean, the, the other thing I was going to mention in terms of kind of, you know, moving the club forward, um, the Fleetwood Town International Football Academy was, was set up uh, over the last last few years with the, the new Poolfoot uh, Farm Chaining Ground that opened in, in 2016. I mean, was that also a big step? Was that always something in your mind that you wanted to set up for Fleetwood as well? Yes, it was. It's. Um, I think it's really, really important that you have a strategy. And we realised a long time ago that we're never going to get enormous gates. The population of Fleetwood is 25,000 people. We are a peninsula. We've got the sea to the east, to the west, to the north. And so you have to decide what you're going to be. You've got to decide what is your, um, what do you want to be? What's your identity? And what we thought was, if we create a special training ground, that the training ground is truly special. Uh, we think it's top end of the championship, if not Premier League. We've got 13 pitches. We've got 33 acres and it's an outstanding facility. It helps us attract players. It helps us develop players. Uh, we've got some really exciting young talent now, which uh, I expect to either help us in promotion to the championship or inevitably they'll end up in the championship or the Premier League because uh, they're that good. But the International Academy really is a spin-off of that, uh, whereby we, we've, we've, we've seen an opportunity whereby we're very close to Blackpool. There's lots of hotels and spare accommodation and we bring boys in from all around the world and we have football league coaches who will then train them and we'll do all we can to make them better football players but if they don't make it as a professional football player then we can be certain that they will go back as better human beings uh, we've teamed up with a local private school uh, an outstanding private school Russell School uh, who I believe is in the top 20 schools in the in the UK and we have a curriculum whereby that they're educated as well. So we have boys coming from literally all around uh, the world and it is a revenue stream that makes good money. And uh, I'm hopeful that on an occasion not too far away, it'll also make a, make a very special football player for a football club somewhere in the world. There's been a lot of conversation around Sunderland's academy. I mean, obviously with us dropping down into League One, trying to um, rely on the or not, maybe not rely on it, but maybe utilise the academy better than we have been in the past and bringing these players on. But for one reason or another, you know, whether it, it was the management or sometimes a look with with a batch of players, which, you know, is a, is a bit of a flaky one. But for some reason, these players, the conveyor belt hasn't happened and we've got a Category 1 academy, which we've stuck to in League 1. In the current climate, is it difficult to try and invest in, in that youth setup? as well as trying to invest in the, in the first team and keep both kind of to a standard that, that you'd like to keep? Well, I, th I, think you, I think your first team is your flagship. That's what people, uh, people look for Sunderland, they look for Fleetwood as uh, how is that football club doing? They look at the first team. As the owner, I look beyond that. And what's really important to me is not so much the results of the academy uh, teams and the under-18s and the under-23s, but it's about the development of the players because... Again, our model is one that I'm in it for the long term. So it's incredibly important to me that we do develop stars of the future and that we have a plan to introduce those players into the first team, into the first team squad. We have to be committed to do that because ultimately how I measure this, uh, this football, football club success is we have to trade well the it's a reflection of the size of the investment that I have to make into the football club every year. Now, the smaller that that investment is, the better the football club has performed. And ultimately, I want the football club to be sustainable. 
but it's never going to be sustainable if I just go out and buy 30-odd-year-old players every year. I've got to have a talent bank. I've got to have players with asset value that are going to come through. We only started our academy uh, four and a half years ago, and so we're kind of planting seeds here, which hopefully will go on and they will grow into trees which will blossom with talent and we can uh, eventually get them through into the first team. And we've got some really exciting talent that are starting to be integrated now. But um, again, our eyes are very open in as much as we can't do this overnight. It's going to take time. It's going to take a few years, but we're committed to the development of players. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, that kind of leads us into kind of the, the current times and your current manager as well. I mean, two years ago, John Sheridan kept Fleetwood um, in League One after taking over from Uwe Rosler. At the time, he was Joey Barton was actually serving a ban from the FA um, with charges relating to betting. And in that April, it was announced that he would take charge at Fleetwood as manager after his ban expired in the summer. The decision raised a few eyebrows, to be fair. So how, how did it all come about and why did you kind of put your put your faith in Joey Barton? Well, I've known Joey for quite a while, really. And uh, I first met Joey back in 2012. And what happened is... We'd been promoted from the conference to the Football League and I was away with the family and the phone rang and uh, it was an agent and he said, it was a scouser and he said, listen, I'm a Joey Barton's agent. And I said, listen, you've got the wrong number, mate. Uh, we're in League Two. He's a Premier League player. He's just had his fight with Aguero and uh, uh, Man City and whatnot. And he's on a ban again. Uh, <laughs> and he said, no, no, hear me out. Listen, he said, he just had a baby. His missus just had a baby and he doesn't want her go down to QPR to train. Now, QPR is receptive to him training in the Northwest, and you've got quite a few scousers. Would you mind him training with you? And I thought, I spoke to the manager, and our view was that anything that raises the bar and the profile of the football club, then this is a good thing. And Joey really enjoyed it, and Joey being Joey, really, he likes to be a little bit different, and uh, he decided, and we decided, really, that what we thought would and could work is if, for him to come on loan to League Two, which is uh, remarkable, really, for a Premier League star. He was on telephone numbers uh, to play in League Two. He was prepared to do it. And uh, QPR in the, initially were prepared to do it. And I think it, was the, it wasn't the it was the owner, it was the manager, it was Mark Hughes, who blocked it. And Joey was really frustrated. He, he desperately wanted to, to come and play for us until Christmas. And it would have been... A remarkable transfer, really, because I don't think a, a Premier League megastar has ever dropped down to League Two, but he nearly did. So we stayed in contact, went over to Marseille and stayed uh, there, went to, went to a game and uh, got to know a few of his friends out in Marseille. And I bumped into him again in the Euros, which was 2016. And it was then, really, whereby over a bite to eat and a couple of beers prior to one of the games, talking to him, and I just thought, this guy has got the ability to be a really, really good manager. Because despite his knacker and his ability to get into trouble, um, he's an incredible communicator, very, very passionate. He is intelligent and, to me, he's a leader of men. I mean, I want a manager who, who can galvanise my football players, who's got charisma, who's got some profile to put the football club in the spotlight and a manager who can motivate and, and really make the hairs stand up on the back of my, my players' necks and... I think Joey's that man. I really do. He's young to be a manager. He's done very, very well so far. And I genuinely believe he'll go on and manage in the Premier League. Obviously, looking from from the outside, it, he seems to have 
Uh, and actually going through the Roy Keane years that we had, he seems to have some similar traits to what Roy Keane had as a manager when he was at Sunderland. He he kind of, he wanted the club to, to kind of get together and all kind of everyone kind of push forward. He wanted the fans behind him. But he seemed to have this knack of, like you said, have that, that, that effect on players where the players wanted to run through a brick wall for him. And he see, seems to have that at Fleetwood. Well, he does, yeah. I mean, he also helps us with recruitment because... If Joey Barton phones you up as a football player, I think you've got to listen because he's one of the most talked about football players um, over the last few decades. And he's, a, as I said, he's a fantastic communicator and he can and he does persuade players to come and play for Fleetwood mm. who, under normal circumstances, may not choose to play for Fleetwood. So a combination of Joey, um, a reputation of doing things properly and the training ground means we can get players who perhaps... Um, if it was down to just the size of gates, we wouldn't manage to recruit. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, on to the current calendar year, which seems to have lasted a lifetime. Going back to, to kind of March, uh, March, April of this year, when the spread of COVID-19 meant EFL had a decision to make. How did you feel that initial suspension of the league was, was dealt with by the EFL? Well, I mean, given that all the businesses closed and we were put into a national lockdown, I don't think the EFL really had a choice, in my opinion. I remember I was on a train going down to London. We're playing Gillingham the next day. And uh, I kind of thought, I need to get off this train and go back up north here. <laughs> because uh, I got a phone call just saying, look, the game's off. And really frustrating for us. We'd lost one game in 18, one beaten in 12. And sometimes in football, you find yourself in that sweet spot and you find yourself um, just having that momentum. And we really felt like whoever we were playing, we were going to beat. And... We came up to you, lads, actually, and I think you equalised with the last kick of the game, max power. Mm. And uh, it was, um, you know, that was a blow. But then we went to Ipswich the next week. We won there. We went to Portsmouth. We drew there. And it felt like we were playing all the big clubs. We weren't losing. We won at Wickham. And we just had that belief and organisation. We always knew as a football club that an element of success was going to be how we managed the lockdown period. And this was really, really challenging because... How do you train your players over Zoom or over Teams or over Skype? It's really, really hard. And there has to be an element of trust. I spoke before about an environment, about a culture of getting everybody in and everyone believing that we're going to do this, that we're going to achieve promotion. And we weren't able to do that. We had to rely on the players. Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing what I should be doing and embracing what technology we possibly could. And frustratingly... In the playoffs, we were just awful. Uh, we lost 4-1 at home. We had no chance, really, then, 4-1 uh, home defeat, going to Wick- Wickham in the second leg. Uh, we had a go. Um, they equalised in the last minute or so, and uh, we drew 2-0. Uh, so, uh, well done to Wickham. It went on to win it. But uh, I, I sincerely, hand on heart, believe if the season had carried on, that we would have... I think we would have been promoted. I really do. Yeah, that, that, I remember that first leg. That first leg was a crazy first leg. Couldn't believe it. I mean, no. <laughs> it was just a just a, a bizarre one. But that, I mean, that was the second time you've kind of lost out. So I mean, with with obviously the blow of you thinking that you you were on a roll and going to get promoted, and then having that blow. I mean, as you said, it was the players were kind of in in lockdown as well. Was it difficult to kind of pick everyone up after that? Yeah, it was. Um, I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to embrace the that horrible feeling uh, and say, mm. look, we're not having that again. We're really not. I think we've recruited well. Uh, we've managed to bring in some real quality uh, this season to complement what we already had. 
Um, we had to leave it quite late, frustratingly. And we knew that we had this situation whereby we felt we had to go quite young at the beginning of the season, particularly with defenders. And though it was great to see some of the lads from the academy playing, we knew it was going to be a big ask to go through the season with those teenagers playing centre-half uh, over what is a relentless, unforgiving 55-60 to 60 game season. We had our targets, but the problem was that the parent clubs of these players, they wanted to hang on and hang on and hang on till deadline day to see if they could get a better offer than what we were prepared to make. They wanted to see if somebody would buy these players or see if a championship club would come in. Uh, we've now got the salary cap in play. I think all League One um, clubs have got pretty much about the same amount of wages to offer players now. So it comes down to geographical location. The players we've got tend to be northwest based and we've got a fantastic working environment. So uh, we're in a good place now. We've won five out of the last six. And I've got to say last Saturday, I felt it was one of the best performances <laughs> in my 16 and a half years. Yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm I know gonna, it's not what you want to hear, Chris. I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna come back to that recent form. I wanna, I wanna pick your brains on that. Um, but I mean, you did have that. You had that initial playoff experience to to get the get used to the new regulations and what you had to do to get going again. So, I mean, how was it preparing for the new season? You know, was it clear what was expected from you as 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 a kind of football league club in terms of the regulations, what the players had to do? I mean, was that was that difficult to, to sort out before the new season? It's been really, yeah, really, really difficult logistically in as much as the players uh, had to come, come in on their own. They weren't allowed to travel in with their mates. It's COVID tests every day at a certain point it was, which are unpleasant and uh, just logistically uh, a nightmare. And then you're waiting to see if you, you end up with any positive tests. You can't feed the players. Um, we would normally have done a pre-season tour somewhere and you get a few pre-season friendlies. Everything was very, very different. It was really unpleasant. And, I mean, that's that's from the footballing side. From an owner's perspective, the concern was that all we were getting was an advance financially on the Premier League money. We were getting a deferral of our HMRC obligations. And we were getting no money. So I'm thinking, we've no crowds, we've no revenue streams. We've got all this really uh, strange protocols that we now have to adhere to. And it was just a, an ultra uh, strange time. It was weird. It was. Uh, I, remember, I remember being at the training ground, which is normally absolutely buzzing on a Friday. There's normally hundreds and hundreds of people there. I'm the only person there. And I just thought, you know, what has happened? What has what has become of this world that I'm I'm so fond of? What on earth is going on? Yeah. So uh, very strange. You did mention the the salary cap uh, just before there. I mean, was that? Was that always inevitable, do you think? Was that always going to come in? And, and what do you think of what they actually brought in in the end? Well, my view is I don't think it's perfect. I think it's, it's far from perfect, but uh, it's my belief that we had to do something and we had to do all we can to avoid um, more, more Berries, more Macclesfields, more Wiggins. And th there's lots of clubs that are financially distressed now. And I would enjoy a footballing world whereby we're talking about football rather than talking about uh, clubs having to play 17, 18-year-old players. We had it with Bolton last year. I think it just undermines the integrity of the competition. And if we can make football sustainable, and if we can get away with paying players less and agents less, because I don't think they need to earn absolute telephone numbers, then that secures the longevity of a football club. And no community should lose 
it's a long-standing hub of its local sporting and social uh, hub, which the football club is. Yeah, well, I mean, coming on to that, I mean, uh, clearly kind of the lack of fans, obviously, is having an impact on the, on the clubs in the EFL in terms of lo- losing out on those gate receipts. And in the last few weeks, we've had the emergency loan scheme. Um, and I saw a quote from you, actually, that it said if it wasn't for that kind of scheme coming in, then eight clubs wouldn't have been able to, to keep going. And you also said this, um, you said, we desperately need the government's help. Without that, we will be looking at another 20 clubs running out of money by Christmas. We are going to be talking about how we lost football clubs unless the government helps find money from somewhere. So, I mean, just a kind of couple of things on that. I mean, firstly, what is the, the current situation? And secondly, in your view, what will the likely outcome be? Do you think the help will actually come? Well, firstly, what I would say is the current situation is absolutely dire. It's a dreadful situation. I believe there was eight clubs that uh, managed to get a loan of some sort from the EFL at the end of October in order to ensure that they could fulfil their obligations to their players and to their staff. And that's only going to get worse. It's not going to get any easier whatsoever. I think we're sleepwalking into a situation whereby we lose our football clubs. And I think that would be an absolute uh, appalling situation. And it's gone on for far, far too long. No one's took responsibility whatsoever. The government has, uh, it's well documented, donated £1.2 billion to the arts, to the Royal Ballet. Uh, We saw rugby last week got £140 a £300 package to a variety of different sports. And you know, brilliant news for those sports, but football is the number one sport in this country and it's important. It's important to people's mental health. It's important to the economies of the various towns and cities throughout the country. It's important to the pride and the quality of life that it delivers to so many people across the United Kingdom. And we cannot have this situation whereby it's passed around from the government to the Premier League. Um, we've got the PFA have been no help whatsoever. I don't think they realise that a load of their members are going to end up out of work uh, if they do not step in. They're sat on something like £50 million. They've not assisted in any way whatsoever. Uh, they're, they're actually, uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, they are complicit, complicit in, um, in really assisting their members to losing their jobs. And I think that uh, they really should be getting around the table with the government, with the Premier League. We now have this £50 million um, rescue package, which I'm told is on the table. And this is just for League One and League Two. We've got £30 million of that £50 million. It's a loan. There's only £20 million, which is a grant. So when you compare it to £1.2 billion for the arts, and when you compare it to the other sports, which I'm sure gratefully received uh, the money from the government, this is bordering on derisory, in my opinion. It's a dreadful offer. All the 50 must be a grant. I think the government have got to then step in and give a significant amount themselves, as opposed to just the Premier League. We've heard all sorts of nonsense from certain people within the Premier League saying, well, why would a successful restaurant help a smaller cafe out down the road? This is not comparable in any way whatsoever. They need the EFL. A lot of those Premier League clubs will be in the EFL in future years, and the vast majority of them have been in the EFL uh, over the last 20 years as well. So they need to remember that. 
then the Premier League needs a successful, thriving EFL. As far as I'm concerned, this could and should have been sorted out about seven months ago. Uh, they've done nothing but pass, uh, pass this around from one person to another, and nobody has done the decent thing. And I think it's apparent that none of the cabinet, it seems to me, are footballing people and can relate to the working man in the streets and, the, uh, as I say, the pride and the pleasure and the jobs that football brings to, uh, to the economy. Mm. Uh, really should have been sorted out. I've got on good authority that there's uh, well over double figures of EFL clubs who now have not been able to pay their pay-as-you-earn obligations. That was last week. And what's going to happen here is football clubs are not going to be able to pay HMRC what they owe HMRC. And so they're going to end up having to retain working capital simply to sustain existence. And uh, I think that that situation is just going to get worse uh, over the um, over the future um, months because I cannot see any chance that anybody can uh, can pay those kind of bills moving forward in the current situation. I mean, we had the project big picture, and I came out and I said, I said I think this is a good idea. The vast majority of it. Now again, it's far from perfect, but what what I really liked about it was there was a recognition that there needs to be a redistribution of funds, and we cannot have the haves and have-nots. We need to have the Premier League distributing that money in a far better fashion. There's no need for parachute payments because I think parachute payments create a, a panic whereby clubs will overspend in order to try to get back to the promised land of the, of the Premier League. And if they don't, they find themselves in a situation whereby they're financially distressed because they've got players on big contracts and they've, they're going to have real downwards momentum then. So for me, um, that is not uh, the way forwards. Um, I think there's also, in my opinion, the game does need shaking up a little bit. I'm not convinced the Charity Shield is that exciting nowadays. I'm not particularly bothered about the Premier League having a couple of less clubs. If that meant that football became sustainable and we weren't in danger of losing football clubs, if we're reading stories about who scored the winning goal instead of who's about to go bust and points per game, uh, that would be a far better world for me. Mm. But again, it's not perfect. But what should have happened is we should have just got the key stakeholders in a room. We should have locked the door and said, sort it out, lads. And once uh, once you've sorted it out, we'll let you out uh, because <laughs> uh, we need a resolution to this problem. We really do. So, I mean, just the, the, the second part of that question, is it such a mess that you have no feeling for what the eventual outcome is going to be? Have you got an inkling on what, what will happen eventually? If the government or the Premier League think that, for whatever reason, they think that we don't need the money anymore because we're going to get fans back, they're sorely, sorely mistaken. They really are. I mean, let, let's let's get on to the, to the football, uh, finally. <laughs> get on to the best bit. <laughs> um, you currently sit seventh on the same points as Sunderland, about a quarter of a way through, through the season. Won five, drawn one, lost five. As you started to mention, last game, superb. I mean, beating Plymouth 5-1 at home. You beat Bristol Rovers 4-1 away. Um, so that's nine goals in the last two games. <laughs> but the, the two games before that, you got beat off Hull and you got beat off Charlton. It, it seems a bit up and down. So how what are your feelings on the season so far? A bit topsy-turvy. I think the Hull away game was, um, it was one of those fixtures whereby nothing went our way. We lost um, our number nine, Chet Evans, after about 40 seconds. He was not spark out with a, he just collided with a whole defender and uh, that didn't help our cause. 
We then lost our, our next forward. He was also uh, not clean out, concussion, after 30 minutes. So it was one of those afternoons where events just conspired against us. Uh, we put a brave fight up, but we were beaten by the better team on the day. But losing our two forwards in the first half really didn't help our course. Uh, we went down to a narrow defeat away at Charlton, 3-2. I've got to say, I thought Charlton were really good. That was a cracking game of football. And uh, as I mentioned before, we won five of the last six league games. and we were well worthy of something on that particular occasion. Uh, it was a very tight game. They pipped us in the end. Uh, but um, we, we played Hull in the league. We beat Hull 4-1 uh, mm. and Hull are top of the league right now. They haven't conceded a goal. So on our day, with the quality that we've got, uh, we've got a real nice blend, I believe, of experienced professionals. Yeah, Glenn Whelans and uh, Charlie Mulgrew, Paul Cooks, Chad Evans, experienced uh, players, who good championship players. But we've also got some exciting young players who are doing really well. Um, midfielder Callum Camps has got 10 goals already. Uh, he's flying, he's bombing on and uh, um, scoring goals regularly. So uh, we're in a good place right now. Uh, yeah. But uh, I don't want to be overconfident because um, I've, uh, I've made that mistake before. <laughs> I remember the playoffs and uh, saying I was confident that we'd beat Wickham and look what happened then. So uh, I'm certainly not going to get carried away. And also, let's be honest, the team you've got is a very good team. And over the course of a season, there'll be a massive ups and downs. Uh, I don't think you're having a bad season because it's just that the expectation is so high at Sunderland all the time. Sunderland should not be in League One. We all know that. Everybody recognises that. And so unless they're top of the league, they're probably going to be. Um, there's going to be an air of underachievement at Sunderland, is uh, is my guess. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, Actually, you talked about the... The forwards having a couple of concussions, but it sounded like it knocked the goals into them because that that's all they've they've done ever <laughs> since. I mean, I mean the last two games you mentioned, you know, five one Plymouth, four one Bristol Rovers. Was it just was it just a couple of games? You know that you have it every so often that just everything goes in, or were you completely dominant and you know you you, you know you deserved to to win by those scoreline? Well, last Saturday we were completely dominant. We were excellent. We were three 0 up after half uh, half an hour. And I think we're 2-0 up after 10 minutes. And we played some fantastic football. I think we had four different goal scorers as well, which is great to see. So uh, we, we, we're scoring goals from all around the pitch, uh, which is always a good sign. You don't want to be over-reliant on any one or two particular players because if anything happens to them, if they have an off game or get injured, then you're going to suffer. Uh, but the Bristol Rovers game, was it was more of a war of attrition, really. It was one of those games whereby it was played in um, awful conditions, kind of sideways rain. And um, it was first half, we had the wind. We got 2-0 in front. Um, they pulled one back. It was 2-1. and We got two late goals. So that was a little bit different, really. Scoreline, slightly more misleading. But we were very, very good on Saturday. Yeah. yeah. It'll be interesting if you're, if you're banging the goals in. We've, uh, you know, well, recently we've had a little wobble, but we've been pretty solid defensively. So it, it should, be, uh, should be interesting whether cancel each other out in that, that respect. I don't see us scoring four or five, Chris. <laughs> I really, <laughs> really don't. Uh, yeah. I'd be delighted with a 1-0 win. Uh, but, um, I, I mean, really, I'm just over the moon to play Sunderland. It's one of those clubs that, um, again, given the journey we've been on and given, you know, we've been in many a game with sub-100 attendances and you go to the stadium of light and, you know, we're pinching ourselves. It doesn't seem real because that's Premier League all day, every day. It really is. 
I mean, obviously, I mean, you talked about winning it by the odd goal. I mean, we played you a fortnight ago in the EFL trophy. Um, not sure kind of what the managers take from that, but I mean, I guess, you know, too, not too many fans take it too seriously. But I mean, can anything be taken from that game a fortnight ago or will Fleetwood put out a pretty much a different side? I think it'll be a different side from ourselves. I would assume that it'll be quite different from yourselves as well. Uh, that's that's my guess. Um, I cannot see um, many of those players starting on Friday. Uh, but that was a real game of two halves. I thought we were really, really lucky to only be one down at half-time uh, because um, Sunderland played really well in the first half and we were just not the races. And second half, we came out, we played a little bit better, a little bit more direct, and we seemed to take our chances. But I think it will be uh, an entirely different game come Friday night, personally. Yeah, we, we were like the walking wounded after that. I mean, all our players kept going down injured and having to go off. I think we had to make, I think she was three substitutions kind of by 10 minutes into the second half, all, all kind of injuries to, to young lads. But uh, I think it was all kind of <laughs> young lads stepping up into the AFL trophy, maybe stretching it too much and uh, hamstrings going and everything like that. Um, but I mean, in terms of Friday night, it, it's a big shame, really. I mean, you know, Friday night game, under the floodlights at Fleetwood and, and no fans. I mean, I'm sure that the Fleetwood fans would be right up for that. Sunderland fans loving away game. I mean, Friday night, they would have been filled the away end, as many tickets as you would have given us. Oh, uh, you'd fill the shame, stadium, I would, I would imagine, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, no, it's a great shame. It, it, it would have been a fantastic occasion. And I've got to say, it's nowhere near the same. It's uh, nowhere near as enjoyable. Uh, I've had the benefit of watching nearly all the games. And it just feels like you're watching a reserve game a lot of the time. Yeah. And without yeah. the crowd there, without uh, the excitement that you see and the, the happiness, the, uh, the joy a goal brings, it's just so very different. You can hear the players shouting at each other and talking. It's, it's somewhat surreal. Yeah, I mean, I mean, actually, I mean, just on that, I mean, watching the games this season, do you think an element of the kind of home away dynamic has been taken out of some of the games because there's no fans there? I really do, yeah, absolutely, because uh, you will... I think that crowds influence referees. I think that's inevitable. You know, if you get the rule of a crowd when a player goes down, in that split second, a referee has a decision to make, and they're human beings. I think they're going to be uh, influenced by crowds. I think that, that that's inevitable, personally, and that has not happened uh, with no crowds. So I think the teams that... Uh, that would get the big gates have probably been at a slight disadvantage. They haven't had their 12th man uh, within the stadium as they normally would. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not going to ask you for a prediction. That'd be a bit unfair, but I mean, what, what kind of, you've, you've obviously seen Fleetwood. Um, I, I unfortunately at times watch, watch Sunderland every week this season, but what kind of game are you expecting on Friday night? I'm expecting a tight game. It's always been a tight game against Sunderland, Fleetwood Sunderland. And, yeah, I'm expecting it to be tight. I think uh, we'll be quite buoyant going into it, but Sunderland have got real, real quality. And if Sunderland click on the night, it's going to be tough for us. But listen, we're capable. And I'm going there. I'm going to enjoy it. Um, it's a great shame there's no crowd, as you say. Uh, but, you know, listen, we're, uh, we're Fleetwood. We're playing Sunderland. So uh, a proud occasion for me, nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, and you've you've just broken every every listener's heart by saying you're going to be there and you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do get you do get something for putting telephone numbers into football clubs. <laughs> well, on on a final note, I just want to mention um, that you've had a 
a club documentary in the pipeline for quite a while um, where the cameras have been following kind of behind the scenes of what's going on at the club. It's similar style to Sunderland Till I Die. It, it, it seems like watching the, the trailer, um, which is, uh, yeah, you sent me it, but I actually saw it, I noticed it was on YouTube as well. Uh, I didn't realise it was it was on there, but it was the first time I'd seen that. So where is that project at at the moment? The project is very much ongoing. It's been filmed again this season and uh, we're expecting it to be aired. Uh, in 2021 we've done five episodes so far it's a very real uh, documentary it's uh, there's team talks in there there's um, recruitment on transfer deadline day um, there's uh, good and bad uh, sides of football really you can see the uh, the elation of uh, beating Blackpool in the dressing rooms uh, what that meant to the players what that meant to the town but there's also some um, real disappointment, should we say, at uh, getting knocked out of the FA Cup at home to Wimbledon. And uh, so much so that the players fall out um, physically. So it's uh, it's very real, it's very gritty. And I think any football fan, and not just a football fan, I think anyone will really, really enjoy it because it's a, a fascinating insight. We're a very different club to Sunderland uh, in as much as we are um, with a small club on the uh, on the up and uh, obviously Sunderland's this massive club that uh, has lost its way, finds itself in League One. So the story is different. Um, it's about football, but I think it's hugely, hugely enjoyable. And the people that I've I've showed the five episodes to have thoroughly enjoyed it. So uh, hopefully we can make an announcement soon when it's going to be aired. Brilliant, because like I said, I, I was. It's the first time I'd I'd seen the the trailer, uh, and the trailer looks uh, absolutely fantastic. If if everything else is uh, like that, then <laughs> it's going to be that, that, that's the boring bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, just just when you mentioned uh, talk about uh, transfer deadline day and behind the scenes, there, I think it's it'll send a shudder down the spine of every Sunderland fan listening because uh, <laughs> the the scene well. in Sunderland till I die was. Uh, I'm saying nothing. On that note, Andy, I, I know you're a busy man. I'd just like to say thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. And all the best for, for the season after Friday night, of course. Listen, it's a real pleasure. And uh, all the best to uh, to Sunderland after Friday night. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to appear on the podcast. Good stuff. And, and thanks to everyone for listening. I uh, hope everyone enjoy it. Please give us lots of stars and likes and all that sort of stuff if you did like it. But from us, it's bye for now. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 